believe that God wants to set you up for the win by helping you to win in the city. Amen? I believe that Oklahoma City and other cities, but I believe for our city, we're in this city, that it can be transformed by some simple and easy principles. Okay? We are living in a season where we are on a tipping point of the scales of God's justice or mercy. I want you to understand there are scales, and on one side is justice, and one side's mercy. But I want you to understand no matter where we are on the scale, he's still good. But we can decide, we help to play a role in whether those scales stay on the justice side or the mercy side. What do I mean by justice side or mercy? There is a story in the Bible that is called the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Gomorrah, if you want to say it that way. In this story, you have a, you have a city or multiple cities actually, more than just God, Sodom and Gomorrah that are totally and completely wiped out and destroyed because the justice of God tipped the scales. I want you to understand that in the story, there was also mercy given. And we're going to read about that mercy given. And we're going to understand how to activate and unlock the mercy of God. We're also going to understand a little bit more about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I believe it's relevant for right now. Because as you look around in the world, it becomes almost impossible to turn on anything without seeing Sodom leaked into our society. I'm not getting all fundamental Christian on you, right? Oh, kids these days with all their sin. Okay? Nothing new is under the sun. Sin has been the same since it's always been. But I'm talking about a particular season. There are seasons that come. I'm not saying that we are in a, a new season. There's nothing new under the sun that's happened. We are in the same cycle of seasons that we've always seen. And I believe that we are on the cusp of a breakthrough for our city right now. How do I know that? Because I see the scales beginning to move. I see justice and mercy playing out its effect. I can see a stark contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And when you start to see a contrast between the wicked and the righteous, you know that God is about to move. Which way he moves depends more on us than it does them. It depends more on us than it does them. I, I want you to understand that this is not a time for you to whine and complain about how bad the world is. Oh, this awful woke world. There's so much wokeness. There's so much Disney. And there's so much, like, there, right? you, you, we can complain about what we see out there. But let me tell you, I am less concerned about this season than I was former seasons, okay? Let me say this. The church is in more danger and trouble when we live in a society that looks more like Leave It to Beaver. When it looks more like the 1950s than we do right now. Well, Pastor Ren, that's a really bold statement. You're saying that when we look around, sin is prevalent. It's accepted. Every show has to have indecency in it. Everything we watch or take in has to be an affront to our faith, right? We're, 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 we're digitally persecuted, right? We're, uh, I would say we haven't got quite to the persecution phase, but we're definitely in the make fun of phase, right? We are made fun of. We're belittled. We're tolerated to the smallest extent in our society. And you would say, how in the world does that, is that less dangerous than the 1950 perspective? And what I would say to you this, is that when, you, when the society behaves in such a way that resembles or mocks the, the, the righteousness of the body of Christ, 
then there is no reason for the world to accept Christ if they already carry the righteousness and the rules of God. And so in a 1950s type environment where we look and we say everything's so wholesome and everything's so good and everyone's so morals, it creates an environment where we can reject the need for a savior because we're all good people. Good people are not godly people. There is a stark difference between the godly and the good. Somebody can behave a little bit better than you, but still be absent a relationship with a savior. And so when we are in a model of a society like we are right now, it creates a stark contrast of light and darkness. It demonstrates the truth that the gospel sets people free, that the gospel can bind up the brokenhearted, can heal the sick. It creates a stark contrast of what the world has to offer and what the church has to offer. We have an opportunity to shine our light. The problem is, is that when the whole world turns on their little candle, our flashlight doesn't make quite the same impact. But when all those candles go out, we shine bright in the darkness. Amen? And so I want, to, I want you to understand what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah was actually an opportunity to release the glory of God over a city, but it was missed. And I don't want us to miss it over ours. Amen? So in Genesis chapter 8, we read about the conversation that Abraham, excuse me, 18. Genesis chapter 18, we read about the conversation that Abraham has with God. Abraham comes to God and he explains, I'm about to destroy the city. Uh, there's wickedness. It's prevalent. Uh, in fact, in Sodom and Gomorrah, just to make this very clear, Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't really identify what the wickedness is in Genesis. We don't see that played out. We just know that there is wicked sin happening in Genesis. Now, we, we, it talks about some of the stuff that they want to do, but it do, God doesn't define the reason uh, that he's destroying it. He's destroying it because the sin is prevalent in all areas, in many areas. And so what happens is, is that Abraham has a conversation with God. He says, I'm going to destroy this, but I'm going to go to my friend Abraham and have a conversation with him. And he goes to him and he says this to him. He says, Lord, would you spare it for 50? For 50 righteous. If there are 50 righteous in this city. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't really list the population in Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a lot of speculation. Uh, some people think it was hundreds of thousands. Some people think it was 600 to 1,200. And we get a speculation by the fact that five cities uh, five kings went out to meet five other kings, and they had a war. And, and in that war, Sodom and his, uh, excuse me, five on Sodom's side, four on the other side. Sodom loses that battle, okay? And they have to retreat. It says they fall into tar pits as they're running away. Like, they have to retreat. They lose this battle. Uh, and then uh, in the middle of this battle, Lot gets captured. Abraham's nephew gets captured. He's Abram at the time. Gets captured and taken away. And so Abram gathers his 318 men and they ride in and save Lot and retrieve all the stolen stuff from Sodom. So 318 men are able to overcome whatever army it, there is. So some people speculate that Sodom would have had a smaller population. Uh, I would say that whatever war this was decimated the armies on both sides, even though uh, the other side won, they probably had heavy, heavy casualties. So at the end of this event, here's Abram just watching them all fight it out. And then they're like, what? He took Lot and he goes in with 318 fresh guys and wins. So it does not mean that there weren't a few thousand left over on the enemy side, uh, but it just means they were fresh for the fight. 
And so they were able to overtake them, pursue them, and, and, and uh, win the battle. Uh, so the best estimates are is that there was about 8,000 people in the city of Sodom. All this is relevant, okay? I want you to understand that. There was about 8,000 or so. That's the, uh, could be completely wrong, but uh, based on what we know, that's a very good, healthy estimate and probably a safe place to land is that there was as many as 8,000 uh, people in Sodom, maybe more. Sodom was a epicenter of trade. It was not a small city. This was not an outskirt, outlying city. It was to the east of the bread basket or the bread bowl uh, in the Jordan Valley. So in, in, he, in Israel, you have this Jordan Valley where the Jordan River ran into the Dead Sea, okay? And it was like a disc. In fact, they would call it that. It looked like they called it the bread basket or the bread valley, uh, but typically bread in those days looked like a pita bread or tortilla would be a very round shape. And if you look at that region uh, of the Jordan Valley, it is very round in its shape. And it says that Lot went off to the east of the Jordan Valley, to the very edge of the east there, and that's where Sodom was. It was a very heavily traded route. It was a very uh, industrial route. It had a lot of commerce, so it would have been heavily populated. So not just the residents that lived there, but it was a trade route. So you would have had a lot of people in there constantly that were trading. So besides just the residents of that place, you probably had thousands of people coming and going uh, on a regular basis through Sodom and Gomorrah. So here's this city, uh, and so that's just Sodom. So Gomorrah would have had some more, and there were other small towns outlying around there that would have had inhabitants. So you have this city of, of thousands of people, and God says, because their wickedness in these cities, I'm gonna wipe them out, I'm done. And Abraham says, would you spare it for 50 righteous? And what is God's response on the scales of mercy and justice? God is saying, I'm going to bring justice because the scales of their unrighteousness have tipped. It has weighed down and Abraham calls on the scales of mercy and says, if there's 50 righteous, would you spare it? And God says, yes, for 50 righteous, I will spare it in mercy's favor, amen? And so Abraham's like, well, what if there was just 45? This is a typical Jewish tactic, okay? Us Jews know how to do this. He says, well, what about 45? And God says, for 45, I will spare it. And he's like, ah, what I meant to say was 40. For 40, you would spare it. And God's like, for 40, you would spare it. And Abraham's like, so basically what you're saying, Lord, is that for 30, you would spare it. And God's like, for 30, I would spare it. And he goes, that is so nice of you to spare it for 20, Lord. For 20, that is really kind of you. And he says, yeah, for 20, I would spare it. He goes, I can't believe your kindness that you're gonna spare the city for 10. And God's like, 10. Okay, I'll spare it for 10, right? And so Abraham uh, is, is, is using a typical uh, a Jewish skill set that is unique to our people, Okay the ability to will and deal, all right? We invented it, we're good at it. See us later for lessons. We will charge you only $5 per five minutes. Okay, we will teach you how to do this. But you have to learn wheel and deal because it's important. Like we're living in a time and a season right now where um, wheeling and dealing might be more valuable than ever before, right? Have any of you had to fill up some gas to get to church? Like, have you gone to the gas station? Everyone's like, oh, wages are up. Yeah, everything else costs twice as much. 
Eli needed to get some new tires. His tire popped. They couldn't patch it. So we went to Walmart. We found his tire. It was, it was, oh, it's only $57. That's not too bad for a tire. He pulls out to see what the other tire was that he got like a year ago or a year and a half ago. And he pulls it out. And the paper says the exact same tire we are now buying. It was $39. And now it's $57. Okay, that's an increase of between 30 and 40%. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So everything is getting more expensive, right? Everything is costing more in this season, right? I took my family, we uh, uh, took uh, most of us, not Eli, but I took the rest of us and we went and saw um, Top Gun. Anybody see Top Gun yet? Okay. I heard that it was, there, was, there wasn't much language. There was no bad stuff in it. I'm like, okay, well, let's go see that. We're going to go see that in the IMAX, right? And I got there. I'm like, all right, we're going to go to the daytime showing because I'm apparently not a billionaire and you have to be a billionaire to go to the night service. If you want to go see the movie at night, you got to be a billionaire. So I got in there. I'm like, hey, it's IMAX. These tickets aren't too bad. They haven't gone up like everything else, right? Because no one's going to the movies. So they kept it low. And I got there and I paid my $475 for all of us to go see this movie. And I'm like, okay, we didn't need food this month. It's no big deal, but that's okay because the concession stand was right there so we could get some popcorn. And my wife always wants some popcorn. So I dealed out another $3,450 for a little bit of popcorn. And I got the popcorn and then they're like, hey, maybe we want some nachos. And I was like, I don't have $10,000 for nachos. Okay, so I had to dish out the $10,000 for nachos. By the, you know, we wanted the better seats, right? You want those good seats. So I mortgaged my house so we could get some good seats. And once I mortgaged the house, we were able to watch the movie in peace. That's what happened. I mean, we were talking about retirement, but we wanted to see a movie. So there we go. It was a good trade. I, it was a good movie. It was a good movie. All right. Yeah. Turns out the highway to the danger zone is buying anything right now. That's the danger zone. <laughs> So, so, you know, I'm like, can we haggle on this? Like, can we, can we find some middle breaking point where this isn't costing us so much? But this is what Abraham is doing with God. Like, Lord, for 50 righteous, would you save it? Down to 10. I believe that the reason why Sodom was not saved is because Abraham didn't ask for one. See, he stopped asking at 10. He never said, would you save it for one? I believe God's heart is always mercy first. So when we talk about judgment, we're not talking about the wrath of God being the preeminent, dominant character trait of God. It is a last effort that God makes in order to restore his people. The last thing God wants to do is remove the unchanged wickedness from the world in order to bring righteousness in. He will do everything he can to transform and change the hearts of those who are a bad example and a bad influence on the world first. He will bring mercy first. And I believe that if Abraham would have spoken one, that God might have done it for one. But let's just say it was 10 and that was the end. Maybe God said, only for 10. I want you to understand the problem and the solution here in Sodom and what's happening. But in order you get that story, I'm going to pause for a second there, and I want you to get it. Jesus talked in parables. This is not a parable. This is not a story, a warning, a reminder uh, that is made up fable so that you will get that living an unrighteous life comes with consequences for a nation, for a city, for a region. This is a true story. The Bible is not an allegory. It's not a parable. It is historical, amen? 
Some of you are like, I don't know if I believe that. I'm telling you there has never been more archaeological evidence of anything ever written than the Bible that backs up every detail and account that the people of God took great care to preserve what really happened. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you would say, why do we need four different accounts of Jesus? Because each one of the writers had a perspective and they wanted to make sure that the perspective was accurately represented. Luke in particular was one of those, he said, everything in good order. When he wrote it, he says, this is a true account of everything in good order. By the time Luke had written Luke, it was, there was already Mark. Mark had already been written and, and Mark was a different perspective. He told the full story. But here's Luke who says, look, his story, it's not that it's not accurate, it's that it's not in order. Jews tell a whole story. They don't jump in the middle of a story to tell another sub-story. They finish one story, right? You ever talk to somebody and they're like, so I went to the store and I ran into this woman and I was talking to her for a minute and then I went down aisle five and got me some, uh, some, uh, some bacon bits. And then when I came back on aisle seven, I ran into her again. And you're like, I don't need to, I don't, just tell me what happened with the woman. You ever have someone do that to you? And they're telling you every detail in every order. And you're like, just tell me what happened. So I met, ran into this woman. After a little while, I prayed for her. And this is what happened. And they're like, well, and then I couldn't find the milk. And they were out of milk. So I asked the guy where the milk is. I don't, I don't need it. I don't, I just want to just, that does. But Luke wanted everything in perfect order. Okay. And so he tells the story differently. The, the best example is the fig tree. They went out. He cursed the fig tree. They went to the temple, he overturned some tables, they came back, in the morning they went back, the fig tree is dead. Whereas the other gospels say it like this, they went to the fig tree, he cursed the fig tree, it died immediately. They told the whole story. I think one day from a live and bushy tree to the next day when they saw it being completely dead was immediately. They weren't there to witness the actual shrivel. So one told the whole story of the fig tree. The other one said, we did this, then we did this, then we did this, then we did this, then we saw this. Luke wanted everything in good order because the Bible is a true and historically accurate account. Amen? Here's the great thing. Archaeology wants to prove the Bible or disprove the Bible. There are two movements in the world, one to disprove and one to prove. And every time they start digging or looking into history, we find it to be true. So recently they found a, an archaeological dig site which happens to line up exactly with the account that we read about in Genesis where Lot had settled to the east of the Jordan Valley. And it's all the way east of the Jordan Valley. And, and uh, the positioning of it very, very, very accurately uh, resembles or reflects the biblical account of where Sodom or Gomorrah could have been. I can't tell you definitively this is Sodom, and I can't tell you definitively it could be Gomorrah, it could, but it is right there. I believe concretely this is the region where this happened. It could be one of many of the cities, okay? But this is, in fact, the region where this happened. And it's an archaeological dig site called Tal El Hammam. Tal El Hammam. And what they found is that they believe that this city was destroyed by what they call an air blast. And an air blast is something where a meteor comes down and before it makes impact with the ground, it, it uh, is so volatile that it bursts into maybe hundreds of thousands of pieces, millions of pieces, but it bursts suddenly above the air. It explodes in the air, causing what's called a heat wave and air blast in the, in the region. This actually happened in Russia in modern times. It happened in a very remote 
area of Russia and the, the archaeological dig site at Tall El Hammam, I'm just going to call it Tall, the archaeological dig site exactly matches the outcome of what happened in Russia, and they were able to actually see the Russian uh, air blast. So they know that this is exactly the setup of what happened in this region of the East Jordan Valley. And so I have a picture here of Sodom that has this air blast happening over it, just kind of a uh, uh, an example of what it would have looked like as this meteor was coming, crashing down and blasting into the sky. Now, it didn't make an impact crater. It it blew apart, which matches the biblical account of raining down of sulfur and brimstone, of fire raining down. This is the matching account of it because this happened in Russia. Amen? So we're seeing evidence of the truth of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let me tell you a couple of details about the science of what they found in this archaeological dig. They've been digging there now for about six years, and what they found is that the impact of this air blast was over a thousand times stronger than the atomic bomb. 1,000 times stronger than what happened to Hiroshima. I want you to catch the ramifications of the destruction that was caused by that. Hiroshima wiped off the map, gone, blasted away. This thing was a thousand times stronger than the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. And it caused temperatures in excess of 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. Some of you are like, whoa, I don't know what that means. Okay, let me give you a, just an example. At 3,600 degrees, an entire automobile, uh, automobile would melt within minutes. Okay? It would completely melt into a puddle on the ground within just a few minutes. The city was flattened instantly and no one survived. This is what the archaeological evidence uh, shows. So you have this air blast that comes in with heat that's over 3,600. In fact, uh, they know it must have been at least 4,400 because uh, there's traces of the element iridium, okay? And it melts at 4,435 degrees. That's how hot it melts and it was melted in their, in their archaeological digs. Pottery was turned to complete glass. So they found pottery that had turned to glass, so they knew the, the minimum amount of heat that this would have produced. So I want you to imagine this, that this thing comes in and it blasts over, and a wave of heat comes in so strong that everything is turned to glass and melts. In fact, not only did it melt or turn to glass, but the sand itself, when they examined it, have little uh, small grains of diamondoids, meaning there was such immense heat that it actually turned the, the wood structures or the metal structures, anything that would have instantly melted or instantly burned up and turned into carbon, it instantly turned it into diamonds. So that means that in order to do that, you have to have immense heat and pressure. So the pressure from this air blast was enough to create diamonds. This is serious business. This is a catastrophic level event that we don't see very often. It's not something that occurs regularly. So for this not to be the place of the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, one of these cities, uh, it, it, it would boggle the mind that you would have two places very close to each other that would be hit like this by an air blast that we've only seen since biblical days one other time that's recorded in our history. 
Several thousand years and one other in Russia has happened recently enough that it was actually documented by scientists. So I think it was not even 20 years ago. So, so the city was flattened instantly, okay? Um, it, it, it need, to turn pottery into glass, it needs at least 3,600 3, degrees. Uh, now, here's what's interesting about that. Well, couldn't it have been a volcanic eruption or some lava? No, lava cannot heat anything that hot. So there's nothing explainable on the earth that could have caused the heat that happened at this archaeological dig site. It had to be outside of any known way the earth can produce heat that way, which includes a volcanic explosion of some sort. Not to mention they found no volcanic ash to substantiate that as well. Okay, and this was published in the Scientific Reports Journal. Um, so neither a volcano or an earthquake could have caused molten metal and ceramics. Um, and these would have high, much, much higher temperatures, I just said. Okay, so it's called, uh, the, the technical term for it is a cosmic airburst when it happens in the air. So we, we see this happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they, they dig in the archaeological dig site. I want to show you the blast radius that they would have calculated. I have a picture here that shows the blast radius that would have happened here in Sodom and Gomorrah. If you see up in the right-hand side on the east side, Right down the center, if you can see the green from that far away, is the Jordan Valley, and you see Tal El Haman. And you see, you see the blast reached even over to Jericho. But what you can't see behind there is that very close to Tal El Haman is actually the Dead Sea. Okay? Now, what's interesting about the Dead Sea is that the Dead Sea is one of the most dense salt environments in the world. You can float on the Dead Sea because of the heaviness of the water due to its salt content. You can just literally just float on top of it. There is no living thing in the Dead Sea. Now, because of the massive heat that came from Tall and this cosmic airburst, because it was so hot, it would have instantly vaporized any water around Tall or around Sodom. It would have instantly vaporized the water leaving all of that salt exposed. In fact, they found salt pillars around there that demonstrate that all of the vegetation and all of the life, even if it survived the heat, which it didn't, would have been so encased in salt that none of it would have been able to survive. And so it actually created salt pillars. What happened is the blast would come in and it would actually turn uh, organic matter into sometimes glass or stone-like substances covered in salt if you were close to the salt. The closer you were to a body of water that held salt, you would have been instantly uh, solidified. <laughs> Saltlidified? I'm just making a new word up. It works. And so we see a biblical explanation for the account of Lot's wife turning into salt that she would have been hit with this blast wave. You say, well, God punished her because she turned around. It wasn't because she was looking back, but make no mistake, here's the problem. The problem with Lot's wife is that she wanted the old life, even though it was drenched in sin and drenched in problems, she couldn't quite separate. So she held on while Lot ran forward. She got behind the pack because she was too busy turning around being like, but my Louis Vuitton and my Gucci stores all of my friends in our book clubs and our wine club. How will I get my wine samples? 
She wanted the goodness of Sodom society. She wanted all the product and the produce. She wanted all of the things of that. And she turned around and got behind. And she was still too close to the blast when it happened. She got behind. God said, don't even turn around. So Lot wouldn't have been able to even turn around to see her. And I want you to understand the blast would have been so bright that it would probably would have fried your eyes just from the heat wave that came up. Anybody ever make a big bonfire and you can't get, get too close to it? I have a big bonfire in my backyard and I get about 10 feet away from it and it's, it's unbearable. So we, we have this big bonfire and we invite the men out and then we make s'mores and you, everyone has to duck down real low, you know, trying to get under the heat just because you can't get close enough to cook your hot dog or make a s'more because the fire is so intense. But you're talking about something that was so hot that it reached all the way to Jericho across the Jordan. So it would have instantly vaporized a lot of the Dead Sea. And that salt would have spread over the entire region. So here is this bread basket who is covered in salt. And it says that it's archaeological evidence says that it was not inhabited for another 500 to 700 years. They estimate 500 to 700 years, there were no inhabitants in Sodom because the salt had so poisoned the ground that nothing could grow there. In fact, we actually see this play out later on when, when Joshua comes into the Holy Land. He's told, you can start taking all these cities. You can take Jericho and they move on to other cities. But God specifically tells him, do not take the land of the Moabs. And the Moab is that land. The Moabs are now wanderers, desert wandering nomads, okay? They, they're, um, uh, they travel around the region and this area is complete desert. And so they occupy the, this area where Sodom was and it's a complete desert and God says, don't occupy it. In fact, until Solomon, we don't really see anybody occupying this region again. But by the time we get to Solomon, they begin to occupy it and there's actually trees growing now. But for 500 to 700 years, there was no growth. There was just desert. And then the ground began to repair and restore itself until there was life once again. And, and it, they actually used some of the wood to rebuild the temple, okay? Is everyone okay? You follow me? A little science lesson. You're like, I don't know why this is important. Because the Bible is true. Because the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not a parable. It is reality. I'm giving you this history lesson, this archaeological information, so that you understand that when God says, the wickedness of Sodom, I can stand no more, that this is not a threat. That we have a good God who has scales of justice and mercy. And we need to take action understanding that this is a real thing that has real consequences for a real world, for our world right now. When we are looking more and more like Sodom, the question becomes not if, but when are you going to decide on the scales, Lord? When will the scales tip and which way will they tip? It's real. It can happen. And God knew it was going to happen before it did. So we need to be prepared to have an answer for the scales of God. So we have this moment where Abraham asks for 10 and 10 are not found. But he does find Lot and Lot is found righteous. We know that Lot was righteous because in 2 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, we read about Lot's righteousness and it said, and if he rescued righteous Lot, that's what he called him, righteous Lot. So right there, we know that Lot was righteous. Oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by, by what he saw and heard the righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. So not only was Lot righteous, but the lawless deeds of Sodom was torturing his soul. Sometimes we think that Lot was tiptoeing and playing around and thinking that he could just be in that, you know, a little, little bit on the edge. No, he was tormented by the sin of this world. Are some of you tormented by what you see happening in society? Are some of you bothered? Does your soul get bothered by what you're seeing that's happening in society? That's fantastic, but it's not going to save our city. I appreciate the sentiment, but Lot could not save the city by his torment over their bad deeds. It was not enough. See, Lot had two daughters. He also had a wife. And his two daughters, it says they were betrothed, uh, as in a fiance. They had already been spoken for by two other men. They were not yet fully married. They were in the betrothal process, okay? Uh, and in biblical times, when you, when you take on a fiance, you are married except for all things which lead to babies, okay? That's the only thing. You don't live with them. You don't make babies, but you are married. That is how it works. The betrothal process is not an investigation process. It's a preparation process. And so they have two fiancés that Lot has picked out for them. So there are six people. I want you to catch what I'm trying to say to you this morning. The problem of Sodom and Gomorrah that brought the destruction to Sodom was not an issue of sin. It was a lack of righteousness. Sodom wasn't destroyed because of its sin alone. It was destroyed because there was not enough righteousness in the city. If they had 10 righteous, the city would have been saved. Sodom's problem was a lack of righteousness, not an abundance of sin. 8,000 people suspected to live in Sodom, and yet only 10 people would it have taken to stop the destruction of that. Do we have 10 righteous in our city right now? Can we find 50 righteous? Because the sin will only get worse, but it's not the sin that brings the destruction. It's the lack of the righteous in the city that bring the destruction. And what happens is, is the problem become that we don't walk in the original design that God intended, the very first command to be fruitful and multiply. We are called to be fruitful and multiply. See, Lot had two daughters and a wife. That's four. Doesn't tell us whether they were righteous, but there's four. I'm imagining since they got taken out of the city that they counted as the righteous. It's four. He had two, they had two fiancés. That's six. If Lot would have created a standard in his family to say, all we have to do is win one then the six would have turned into 12 and Sodom would have been spared. All we have to do is win one and Sodom would have been spared. Well, we don't know about these fiancés. Why is Lot picking fiancés that aren't righteous for his daughters? Oh, he's grieved, but he is not proactive in undoing the sin of Sodom. He's righteous, but he's not out loud. And so what happens is, is the righteousness of Lot still leads to him running away from Sodom. 
the destruction still happens because he does not share his faith. He does not create another. He does not multiply the righteousness on his life into somebody else. You will have to avoid what you don't advance. You'll have to evade what you were once called to expand. Anywhere that God has called you to expand, if you will not live that out, you will eventually evade what you were supposed to expand. God has called you to expand the kingdom of God. Well, pastor, that's your job, right? It's your job. You're supposed to expand the kingdom of God. See, Lot would have had to win nine others by himself if he was the only righteous one. But if his family simply would have taken on the burden to say, I will share my faith, I will raise up one, I will do my part. When Abraham would have asked God, will you spare the city for 10? God would have looked down and said, the city is now spared. What are you doing to make sure our city has the mercy of God weighted in its favor versus the justice of God? See, your abstinence of sin does not produce an abundance of righteousness. See, we can't think just because we don't sin that somehow we're righteous. Lack of sin does not equal righteousness. The abstinence of sin does not produce a righteous society. Righteousness is a product from a heart posture of obedience. Let me say that one more time. Abstinence of sin is not righteousness. Righteousness is a product of a heart posture of obedience. It is not a product of obedience. I need to clarify this. You can't just simply follow the rules and be counted as righteous. That's not how it works. It is a product of a heart posture of obedience. When your heart loves the Lord unto obedience, righteousness is created. Aren't you so glad that Jesus came and had a heart posture of obedience to the Father so that we could all be counted as righteous even when we're not that obedient? See, Jesus came to make us righteous where we struggled before. I know it says, the Bible says, not one was righteous, no, not one. Abraham was not counted as righteous because he, he followed the deeds. It was because of his heart posture. It says his faith made him righteous. He had a heart posture towards God and that led him into obedience. It led him into obedience. Your obedience alone, your abstinence of sin will never save you. And it'll never save our city. Just because you live holy does not make you holy. It's the heart that God is after. So you may be righteous, but that won't save our city alone. You may be righteous, but are you reproducing that? God wants to compound your calling. He wants to increase what he's called you to, and that means making disciples. The world is a better place, not just because you are righteous and in it, but because you simply refuse to be hushed in your holiness. When the church of God refuses to be hushed in their holiness and starts to live out loud, then we will transform others into the image of God. We will change and transform and our city will not be saved because it's sinless. It'll be saved because the righteous are in it. 
your presence guarantees the mercy of God over our region. Because you are here, so is his grace. So is his mercy. So is his love. Your neighbors are blessed without even knowing you because you are simply present. Everywhere you go, you are blessed. You are highly favored. You are the head and not the tail. Some of you have jobs and businesses where the the business owner is a corrupt businessman, but somehow you're like, I don't know why he's so corrupt, and he, but there's favor on his life. His business keeps expanding because the righteous are in it. Because you are present, it must be blessed. I will bless it for my son, for my daughter who is in it so that they can continue to get their paycheck. Your life, your presence is a blessing unto itself. I want you to understand that you carry the favor of God where you go. If you are in a Sodom and there's enough of you, Sodom is blessed because of you. So sin will abound, but righteousness all the more. The world is better because you're in it. If you want to see, if I want to see my city transformed, then simply living out the message isn't enough. I want you to catch this. If I want to see this city transformed, then me simply obeying, me simply following the rules, doing what the book says, living out the message is not enough. It needs to multiply the messengers. I need to unmute the message, live out loud, and replicate righteousness. Let me show this to you. What happens is is that if you live with faith internal, I, I believe this. I believe that if you live only with faith internal, that you can never live eternal. Eternal must become external. Internal will never lead to eternal. If your faith is only inside of you and it's never displayed outside of you, there is no eternity in you. John 7, we read about a story in John 7, picking up at verse 47. We read about the story about one of the stories of the time that Jesus has interacting with Nicodemus. Now, if you remember who Nicodemus is, Nicodemus is the teacher of teachers. He sits on the Sanhedrin. He sits on the council of the rabbis, okay? This is a prominent man, a leader of leaders. He runs the religious order. He's not the the high priest, but he's high, okay? He's not the pope, but he's the bishop. Does that make a cardinal? Whatever the high one is, I don't know. So he's up there. And he's come to Jesus by night. And one of the things he says when he comes to Jesus privately, the internal conversation in the secret place with Jesus, he says, I believe you're the one, you're Messiah. So Nicodemus has confessed to Jesus his faith. But I want you to remember what Jesus tells us later on. If you deny me before man, I will deny you before, come on, some of you need to know this, before the Father. The question is always, as I read, is Nicodemus saved? Does this man have faith in Christ to salvation? And we have this example here in John 7, which shows and illustrates the problem 
that's happening in Jesus' ministry that leads to destruction. It says in John 7, 47, the Pharisees then answered them. They're speaking to the guards. They've sent guards to go and seize Jesus because Jesus has openly started uh, uh, talking at a festival, one of the religious festivals, and he's speaking, and they're amazed. The crowd's absolutely amazed. Some are saying, man, this guy's a prophet. Some are saying, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And so the Pharisees are like, go arrest him. And they're baffled. They're like, who gave this man authority to speak? He didn't have any formal education. He didn't sit under a rabbi. How, how is he a rabbi? Where did he get all this knowledge from? They recognize him as rabbi, but they don't recognize his education as one. The Pharisees then answer them. These are to these uh, guards that have gone to seize him, temple guards most likely. You have, you have not also been led astray, have you? So they're listening to Jesus. They believe this man is a heretic. He's leading them astray. And the guards are like, we've never heard anybody talk like this in all of our life. And so the Pharisees respond, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him. The Pharisees' argument is no one of the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in him. Has he? Ooh, this is a question. It's got a question mark. That's how we know it's a question. Because there's a question mark. Has he? This would be a great time for Nicodemus to speak up, wouldn't you think? Nicodemus has already come to him by night. He's already said, I believe you're the Messiah. And now the Pharisees that are there, someone has spoke up and spoken on behalf of the Pharisees. No one of the rulers, Nicodemus, or Pharisees, also Nicodemus, has believed in him, has he? Nicodemus should have said, I do. I do. I, that's me. I do. I believe. But let's look what happened. But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. So now they're placing judgment on the crowd for believing in Jesus because no Pharisees have. And the crowd is beginning to be talked out of their faith because, well, none of the Pharisees would, is standing up for Jesus. Maybe we are being deceived. And they curse the people. And they start to rob them of the seed that Jesus has planted. Nicodemus, who he came to him before being one of them, so we know Nicodemus is in the crowd, said to them, oh, so now Nicodemus is going to speak up. All right, here's your chance, Nicodemus. He has said not one of the Pharisees, not one of the rulers, have they? You guys are cursed for listening to him. Now Nicodemus has heard enough. He's going to be bold, and he's going to declare that this is the Messiah, and y'all need to listen to him. And so let's see what Nicodemus does in this moment where he's already confessed to Jesus face to face. I believe in you. Says to them, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him. You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So they make fun of Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't confess, I believe he's Messiah. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. Shouldn't we at least have a trial? Let's be nice to the man and hear, you know, let's, we, we, innocent until proven guilty. I'm not saying he's not guilty. I'm just saying like we got we to gotta process here. So Nicodemus gets them to back off of him, but never confesses him. 
Nicodemus does the right thing, but not the righteous thing. You doing the right thing does not bring transformation to your city. It's the righteous thing that you do that sometimes leads to your uncomfortability. It sometimes leads to your persecution. See, Nicodemus didn't even confess Jesus and they're taunting him and making fun of him. You remember the old phrase in the Bible that says, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is a city in the region of Galilee. And so they're going, ha, are you also from Galilee? Galileans were considered lower class, uneducated. They were what one side of the political spectrum would refer to a lot of the people here in Oklahoma. They would try to say we're uneducated. That we're just a bunch of rednecks, right? Is that not the narrative that gets played out in our country? I'm not getting political. I'm just saying that that's the narrative we get labeled at. You ever travel anywhere and they're like, oh, I thought Oklahoma people were like this. Right? My friends in California, when I first moved here, asked me when I moved here, are there like people in teepees? And is there like covered wagons and stuff? And I said, you're kidding, right? And they're like, no. I'm like, that's really what you think? Yeah. I'm like, no, it's like a real city with people and cars. They got airplanes. What? In their defense, I thought it was like that too when I was going to move here. That's what we thought. So Nicodemus, all he does is say, hey, 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 hold on. We have a, we have a trial. We have a system for this. And he's ridiculed and made fun of. So Nicodemus keeps his mouth shut and the city continues on a downward spiral. Now, in Jesus' case, all these things must happen, that he might be lifted up, that he might die for our faith. So they needed to happen, but they don't need to happen in our city. So what is, let, let me explain this to you, because Nicodemus has a secret faith. Now, we see Nicodemus later on at the tomb, burying Jesus, helping to, helping to bury Jesus and put him away. So Nicodemus meets him at night. He, 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 he stands up for him to help him not get judged in this very moment, and then he's burying him. But he never once confesses his faith publicly to anybody. He keeps it internal. What is cultivated in secret must be communicated to society. We are called to be farmers who cultivate culture, and we reap a crop of heaven on earth. Let me say it this way. You cannot have public faith without a private fire. You can't have a private faith without a public display. Some of you all need to get your PDA on with God. Some of you all need to publicly display your affection for the Lord. Some of you need to be willing to share your faith and live out loud when someone says, who dare amongst you would say you're a Christian? I am. I'm one who believes in it. What kind of idiot would believe there's a God who came in flesh form? Me. That's me. I'm the idiot. That's me right here. I'm that one. I'm that one. I'm that one. And I'll declare his name that I might find one and turn us into two. So there might be only one of me, but I'm going to turn us into two. That's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to ask that other one to turn it into two. You know what happens to a penny that's multiplied every day? In 30 days, it becomes over a million dollars. One penny multiplied. That means one turned into two, and those two each got one. If you will just get one, we can win our city, because all we needed in Sodom was 10. Can we find 10? By finding one. Can we find 10? Or are we content to live within our walls? Are we content to hide and come to Jesus by night? Are we the type of Christians 
that are willing to let our city die. Oh, God will spare us. Though 1,000 fall at my left and 10,000 fall at my right, it shall not touch me. Yes, God spared Lot and his family. God let them have time to evacuate. I don't want to evacuate. I want victory. I don't want to run. I want to overcome. I don't want to evade. I want to expand. I want to see the kingdom of God advanced. And that means that it's my job to make sure that I multiply. It's my job. It's your job to make sure you multiply. Your job. It is not my job to do the multiplication for you. You're called to multiply. You're called to bring them in. Here, I'm going to make it real simple for you, and I'm going to close with this. I'm going to make it real simple for you. We don't need another Sodom and Gomorrah lesson to understand what we're called to do. We cannot hide in the building. We cannot hide coming here on Sunday morning, gathering together, saying, amen, let's go, and then going out there and living a silent life for God. Let me, let me make clear what I'm not asking you to do. Some of you, you need to go to a different level. But I'm not asked, saying that you have to be as bold as some of us here and run around to everywhere, leading everyone to Christ and praying over every sick person. I'm not gonna put that heavy burden on you, okay? I'm not gonna guilt you into everywhere you go. You gotta stop and take 15 more minutes and share your faith. I'm not gonna guilt you that every time you're in a rush that you have to stop and do that. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to make that implication. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I'm not guilting you into you have tos. But what I am saying is that if Lot would have taken one simple call, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that means making one more. That if Lot, his daughters, his wife, and those two, take out the fiancés, just add Abraham. Just add Abraham. Abraham went and won back everything that was taken from Sodom and he gave it back to the king. And the king said, take what you want. He says, I want nothing from you. Abraham was righteous to the king of Sodom, but he never shared his faith. The king could have been transformed, which would have transformed the city. If Lot, his daughters, his wife, and Abraham had won one in the city, it would have been saved. Abraham was willing to haggle in secret, but not willing to go and share. He didn't share. I'm asking you this, who's your one? Who is your one? Well, Pastor Ren, I've already won one. That's fantastic. Do you know 95% of Christians have never won somebody to Jesus? They've never won one. W-O-N, they've never won one. I think that it should be every Christian's mission to at least come in at the bare minimum of multiplication and say, I've won one. I've won one. I've won one. Does that mean you have to personally be the one that leads them in the sinner's prayer? No. But you need to be involved in the process of turning them from a Sodom into a son. So I'm going to ask you this. Would you take the call with me? Would you make a decision that, hey, I'm going to make sure that because of me, 
and my heart posture of obedience that the city is saved, that the city has an opportunity, that this region is blessed because I've multiplied enough that when God comes and looks and says, I found the righteous among you, and so therefore I'll spare them to give you time to advance. Sodom was destroyed because there was never any hope, because there was never any hopefuls sharing hope. There were never sons sharing, so Sodom had no opportunity to turn. They didn't have a Jonah to come and tell them to repent. There was no one to bring transformation into the city. God will always tip the scale of mercy and the favor of people when there are those willing to share his love. See, God wants us to chase down the hurting, the hopeless, and the helpless. He wants us to give hope to one. That's all we have to do. We want to pray for you. Send us a message with your prayer requests through Facebook or email and let us know how we can pray for you today. Also, let us know how this message impacted your life. I love you. God loves you. Shalom.